Well, we're in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 this morning. We've been in this book for 13 or 14 weeks. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to, uh, to turn there with me. And you know, you never know really what God is going to do through His Word and by His Spirit. Uh, last Sunday morning, as we were wrapping up, as we were singing our final worship song, I was sitting or standing really in the same spot that I always stand. Uh, and a man came up to me, and some of you may have seen him, came up to me with his young son uh, in tow, and he said, Pastor, can we talk somewhere? I said, of course. And so he walked down the, the center aisle there. We walked out into the uh, foyer over by the coffee bar, and he explained to me that he and his son were traveling from Tennessee, North Tennessee, to Georgia, and they just happened to drive by Capshaw Baptist Church, and when they did, they, he said, I just felt the Lord calling me to go inside. He didn't know anything about our church. But he came in and sat through really two-thirds of the, the worship service. And he took me out. He was explaining this to me. And as he did, he just broke down and literally buried his head in my shoulder crying. And he said, that forgiveness from God that you talked about this morning, he said, I need that. I need to be forgiven for what I've done, for what I continue to do, and for what I'll probably do even as I leave today. He said, I need that forgiveness uh, he was crushed with guilt. He said, what do I need to do for God to forgive me? And I said, well, the beautiful thing is Jesus has already done everything so that you can be forgiven even today. What God calls you to do is repent and believe. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that he came and perfectly obeyed all of the Father's commands in all the ways that we fail to. Believe that he died on the cross for your sin. It was your sin that put him there and my sin. Believe that he was raised again so that you could be made right with God. God calls you to believe those things and entrust yourself to the one who sent his son to die. He said, I want to. I don't know how, though. He grabbed my hand and I, I showed him how to put his faith in Jesus, and, which he did. He put his faith in Jesus Christ that morning, yet last Sunday morning. And, and it was just, it was an incredible thing. He, there was a, almost a sense of relief. There was a sense of relief, of freedom. He thanked me. He dried his tears. And then he just went out the exit and drove to Georgia. I will probably never see him again, at least that I can imagine. But I believe that God did a miracle last Sunday morning in bringing someone who was spiritually dead to new life in Christ. And you never know what God's going to do. We don't know what God's going to do this morning. Maybe what I'm doing is I'm just turning over the rocks and moving the dirt out of the way and tilling the soil for something God will do a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. But we know that God promises to do a mighty thing through his word by his spirit. So we're going to trust him with that this morning. First Timothy chapter six, we're going to cover verses one through 10. Uh, there's a lot in here, a lot to cover. Let me start by reading verses one and two. The text reads like this, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who believe who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, I want to stop there because uh, this theme of slavery uh, actually appears in several places in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 6, in Colossians chapter 3, and then again in, in, in even greater detail in 1 Peter, uh, the book of 1 Peter. And here Paul says that 
all who are under a yoke as slaves, that is to say, those who are under bondage, those who actually live as the property of someone else, are to honor their masters. Now that really sparks a lot of questions, doesn't it? Maybe we might even think some outrage. Um, So before we go any further, let me talk for just a minute about ancient uh, slavery, Greco-Roman slavery. When we think about slavery, what naturally comes to our minds, of course, is uh, the, the, uh, what happened in the slave trades of modern America, slavery that was, that was race-based, slavery that was, that was brutally harsh, the kind that, uh, if you've ever seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, which is a, it was an Academy Award-winning movie, a beautiful depiction of uh, both, both the horror and the tragedy and the evil of slavery. And this is what we think about, of course, naturally when we read about slavery in the Scriptures, But but slavery in first century Ephesus, in the first century Greco-Roman world, which is, of course, where Paul is writing, it was very different than the slavery we know about in North America in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Slavery in the Roman world was not so much about race as it was about a socioeconomic arrangement. Uh, Poverty was was rampant in the ancient Greco-Roman world. It was so rampant that there were plenty of people who uh, really had no idea where their next meal was going to come from. Uh, they, were, they were that poor. They were that destitute. Some, and for some, their only option really for survival was to be sold into slavery. Some, there was no bankruptcy, of course, back then. And so if you didn't have enough money to survive on, you had to think of some way to take care of your family. And for some, they reached such a destitute place that they would actually sell themselves and even their own family into bondage as an economic uh, necessity. There were, uh, there were other ways you could become a slave. Some were, were, became slaves through, by prisoners of war. Um, sometimes men could be sentenced to slavery as a part of their uh, crime they committed, a consequence of that. A person could become a slave, again, by his own doing, as I just talked about. Um, uh, maybe, again, selling himself into slavery to eliminate debts. But many slaves, many slaves, again, in the first century Greco-Roman world actually lived pretty normal lives. I mean, fairly normal lives. A slave could be a houseworker, but a slave could also be an architect. A slave could be a caretaker, but a slave could also be a builder, a philosopher. A slave, as we know, could even be a treasurer of the city. There were lots of positions that slaves held, and in many instances... Slaves were actually considered part of the extended family. But, but, no matter how you look at it, slavery was at the very bottom of human existence. Slaves were properties. So, so no matter how you look at it, and, and you, we look at the differences, and the differences are very important to identify. But even so, slavery was the very bottom of human existence. So in light of that, we can't help but think, Why didn't Paul tell slaves to revolt? Why didn't he tell them to run for freedom? Why didn't he tell them to get their freedom by any means necessary? Instead of instructing slaves to regard their masters of worthy of all honor. So the question comes up when we read this, was Paul actually condoning slavery? Was he approving the practice of slave ownership? If he did, that would be a big problem, wouldn't it? Well, the answer is no. We can say for certain that neither Paul nor any other 
of the, the biblical writers condone slavery. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in fact, does not represent slavery as something, never represents it as something that's noble or honorable or good. Instead, he actually expressly condemns slavery. We saw this passage uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. Paul says this, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then listen to this, this, this list of vices. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers... Notice that word, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. So, so Paul has this list of, of, of wicked sins, um, those who stand under the condemnation of the law. And this thing includes, this list includes, includes some very serious things like murder. It's hard to get more serious than that. And in that same list of murder, abusing your own parents, Paul includes enslavers, those who traffic Enslaves those who own and sell human beings as property. Paul says the one who does this is lawless, disobedient, ungodly, and a sinner. We would also go a step further and say this person is unsound in his doctrine and condemned by God's law. So there's no ambiguity here whatsoever. Slavery, slavery is morally reprehensible. It is wicked. It is evil. It is against God's design. And we can even go a step further, I guess, in terms of explaining this and say, when any human being, when any human being is treated as less than equal due to their family lineage, their earning power, their color of skin, their race, their background, God is dishonored and will bring judgment. When any human being is treated as less than equal for any reason, but again, if that's the case, then why wouldn't Paul call for slaves to revolt? Well, even though there are times, there are times when Paul actually encourages slaves by all means to get their freedom if they can. He also says, as I just read, if you are a slave, honor your master. And then there's that very important phrase, so that, verse 1, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The name of God refers to, of course, the reputation of God, God's, God's character, and the teaching refers to the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. So one uh, linguist and historian explains it this way. William Mounts explains it this way. Slaves are to respect their masters, not because slavery is a proper institution or because Paul supposedly has no social conscience, Rather, the success of the gospel is more significant than the lot of any individual, and therefore slaves should behave in a way that does not bring reproach on the gospel. Mount says the success of the gospel is more significant than the lot of any individual. Let me say it a different way, and this is our first point this morning from the text. There is something more important than even our independence or personal rights. It is the advancement of the gospel. See, if slaves would have turned against their masters, then they would have given the watching world a reason to, another reason, there were already plenty of reasons, a reason to disparage the Christian message, 
a reason to reject Christ and his followers. But if they remained in their situation despite their struggles, despite their dishonor, and they sought not their own good or advancement, they would then stand out for a very different reason. Right? And the gospel would advance. And I thought about this, tried to think and pray about how this actually applies to us today. And there were kind of three, I guess, categories that came to my mind where I think there is, and there are more, I'm sure you can come up with more, but there were three that popped out to me as far as practical application in the area of marriage, in the area of how we use our bodies, and I think in, in the area of the church. In the area of marriage, you know, you'll, uh, I'll sometimes hear from a man who, well, she doesn't satisfy me. I deserve better. And so then start plotting a way to leave his wife, or maybe he's already left his wife. Or from a woman who'll say, you know, he just doesn't captivate my interest. He doesn't love me the way that I want to be loved. I deserve better. And yet, the scriptures tell us, in fact, 1 Peter 3 has this specific scenario in mind where someone is married to an unbeliever who doesn't love well, doesn't serve well. And Peter says, no, remain in your situation so that they may actually be won to Christ. The other area that I thought of was how we use our bodies. Sometimes people say, well, it's my right to do what I want with my body. Maybe this means uh, sexual uh, infidelity or, or, or promiscuity or, or doing something else with the body. And we say, well, this is my right. That's actually not true. We know that we've been bought with a price. But even so, you know, we're called to set aside our rights, our personal rights and so on. And the other area I think it sometimes showcases is in the church maybe. When someone says, well, I've been part of this church for longer than just about anybody else. I deserve to have my songs sung. I deserve to have my ministry highlighted. Well, not really. Sometimes, in fact, we're called to set aside our own prerogatives, our own rights for the advancement of the gospel. Now, maybe you're thinking, why would anyone willingly give up his personal rights so that his enemies would be able to thrive? And if you're thinking that God's moving your mind in a very good direction, we're going to answer that question in just a moment. Because there is one who gave up his rights which were more meaningful, which were more powerful, which were deeper and greater than anyone else's rights ever. But he willingly set them aside so that his enemies could truly prosper. Now, look at verses, uh, the last part of verse 2 through verse 5. Um, Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. This guy doesn't mince his words, does he? This guy understands, he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul says, teach these things. Now, we've seen that phrase uh, many times already in this letter. And in here he explains these things, verse 3, as the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Well, this is not simply what Jesus has said, but it's the message about Jesus. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says this, some think this refers to what is found in a written gospel and thus means words spoken by Christ. 
But that misses Paul's emphasis, namely that the false teachers have, have abandoned the truth of the gospel, which comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul commands Timothy to teach is salvation in Christ alone, that Christ is not only the foundation of the church, which he is, but he's also the foundation of our salvation. That's the way that anyone who would be saved will be saved. It's through Christ. And, and we saw in the first few weeks of our study that there were some in this church at Ephesus who were making salvation about doing things, right? About, about adhering to special rules, about rejecting certain things or keeping certain, uh, having certain knowledge, being descendants of a certain lineage, lineage. And Paul doesn't just say, you know, these people, they're, you know, it's okay. They're just, they're just a little misguided. He doesn't say, you know, they mean well. He doesn't say that at all. He says, no, they're depraved. They're deprived of knowledge. They're puffed up with conceit. In other words, they are pompous fools. They don't know anything. He doesn't say, well, you know, look, bear with these people because, they, they, you know, it's okay. They're just they're trying to fix. No, he says, these people are pompous fools. They don't understand anything. They're so evil that they've been duped by their own imaginations. And what do they produce? Verse 4, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction in the church. In other words, because of the depravity of these false teachers and their arrogance and their foolishness, all hell has broken loose in the church at Ephesus. This is a consequence of their false teaching. Now, here's the warning, and this is our second point this morning. When a church abandons the gospel, that marks the beginning of the end of that church. Now, not necessarily the end, the, the end of the church's existence, but the end of the church's fruitfulness, the end of the church's effectiveness, the end of the church's ability to bring about this word of transformation of anything of power. When a church abandons the gospel, that marks the beginning of the end of that church. In a church where the foundation of Christ had already been laid, actually painstakingly laid by Paul and Timothy, false teachers were perverting the gospel, which led again to, quote, constant friction and ultimately the rejection of the faith by some. Now, when we think about abandoning the gospel, at least what I would think about, is this is a church that started teaching just very clear, very obvious heresy. In other words, I would think that to, to abandon the gospel means you're teaching things like Jesus is not Lord. He wasn't raised from the dead and so on. But, but this is not the way that it works. This was actually a very subtle thing that they started teaching. Very subtle uh, perversion of the gospel. And again, it was destroying the church. I was uh, watching this video lecture the other day by this guy by the name of Hayden Shaw. If you've ever heard of him, I hadn't heard of him before, but he's the, apparently the, the nation's foremost expert on what's called generational accommodation. And, and what that means is he's really what he, he's, he's the foremost expert in trying to help uh, multiple generations coexist and live together, right? So what he pointed out was we are at a, a time in history that's unlike any other time because now you have five generations of people living together. Working together, living together, uh, worshiping in church together. 
And this has never been like this before. I mean, I say never. I mean, in the last 15 or 20 years, it's a new sort of development. Because now you have, maybe a little bit longer, that we have people who are, like in our church, we have newborn baby. We have little teeny kids. And we have people in their 90s. We have a lady who's 101. So this is a, this is a fairly new phenomenon where you have people of five generations living together, working together, worshiping together. And... Uh, He's, you know, he, this guy, this, he, he talks about how multiple generations can not just coexist, but kind of thrive together. And I won't bore you with the whole lecture, but there was one thing I thought was pretty stunning. He said, the reason that so many millennials, so we're talking about roughly 20-year-olds to 36-year-olds, said the reason that so many millennials are leaving the church is because of the moralistic message that so many churches are cranking out. In other words, what they're saying is, you can be better if you just try harder, right? You can be better if you just work at it better. You need to be better, and you can. God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to succeed. He wants to extend your whatever, and, and He's there for you. He's there to help, but really it's all on you. I guess if you want to get really technical, it's kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism, which says that God's around to help, but really this is on you, and you can do this. And what's happening is, not surprisingly, millennials are leaving the church because they're realizing, well, actually, I can't do this. I'm actually, I am trying harder, but I'm still failing. My relationships, I'm failing, I'm still failing in my behavior. I'm trying the best I can. So every, church, every week they, they, they were coming to church, getting beaten down with all the things they haven't done but should be doing and told they got to look inside this inner strength or whatever, and they're leaving the church. The gospel, though, is actually a very different message. In fact, I would say the gospel is the opposite message. It's not about self-improvement. It's about a holy God who is almighty and all-powerful and a human race that actually stands under the judgment of this holy God. But that God, because he is rich in mercy and grace and love, he actually took the initiative and went all the way to save a broken and helpless people. He provides a way for forgiveness, for reconciliation, and it's by believing, not simply by buckling down and trying harder. But that's not what the church at Ephesus was teaching. They were teaching you adhere to certain rules and you avoid things and you do things. If you have secret knowledge and whatever, then you can be right with God as long as you keep the law. Now, there's another manifestation of this gospel abandonment. Look at verses 5 through 8. So it's causing constant, constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind, deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness is a means of gain. Now, he says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, we can, cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. These pompous fools, this is what Paul calls them, these pompous fools with depraved minds not only had rejected the gospel of grace, but they had imagined that godliness was a means of gain. What in the world does that mean? The first time I went to New York City, I was 25 years old, and I was working as a sales manager with American Express Corporate Services, and I had a meeting on the 77th floor of the World Trade Center, and I remember flying in, taking a cab to the heart of lower Manhattan, and just being absolutely blown away 
by this city. I mean, I'd never seen anything like this before where you, as far as you can see, skyscrapers and buildings. And I was also really stunned by all of the sort of cultural and artistic and ethnic diversity. Everywhere I turned, I saw food that I'd never tried or even heard of. I didn't even know what, what this was. Um, art and design that I'd never seen. Churches of, of different denominations and people groups. That, churches that I didn't know even existed. It was all pretty amazing. All of this sort of melting pot of culture. and every, Well, this is kind of the way it was in first century Ephesus. Now, of course, it wasn't nearly as big as New York City. It was only a, a very small and condensed city. But it was actually bubbling over with culture and, and diversity and art and religion. So it was, it was everywhere. There was this sort of cultural explosion, this very important city of Ephesus. And there were gods and goddesses that were worshipped, gods of the sun and the moon and the rain and the earth and pleasure and fertility. There was a great temple of Artemis which was stood in the shadows of where the early church gathered. And financial homage was paid to, this is important, financial homage was paid to these so-called gods. So if you wanted to be right with a certain god, it would cost you. Religion was big business in the first century Ephesus, and it was the perfect place for con artists, religious charlatans, to set up shop. Speaking of uh, big cities, we took a vacation a few years ago to San Francisco, my family, and uh, we were coming out of the city. We, were, we stopped at the gas station, and there was a man there who had a sign that said he was homeless, and he had six children that needed fed. And so I, I went up to him and I said, I don't, I don't have any money, but I said, if you want, I'll buy your whole family hamburgers from uh, this, the restaurant next to the gas station with Jack's. In Southern California, we call it Jack in the Box. I think it's just Jack's here. But anyway, I went to this guy. I said, I'll buy your whole family, everybody, hamburgers from Jack's. He said, oh, they won't eat that. This is a homeless man. Tell me they wouldn't even eat Jack's hamburgers. I don't know why I shared that story. I was thinking about con artists, and this guy was a con artist to me. I don't think he really needed the money if you wouldn't eat food from a fast food restaurant. But there were con artists who were everywhere in ancient Ephesus. And what was probably going on was with these false teachers, they were charging people for their teaching, which they were, what they were, they were espousing as this sort of new religion. They were calling themselves the experts of a new religion, which would not have been uncommon in those days. And in order to do so, to actually get an audience with people, in order, in order for people to actually pay for your religion, you had to keep up the appearance of perfection. So they had to appear to have it all together. I love how one historian, J, uh, Jerome Quinn, comments on this about the false teachers. He says, these men suppose that godliness pays. They had all the externals without the spirit. The words without the music, the letter without the living voice. This role playing gets them an actor's salary. And for them, religion is a livelihood, not a life. So if you can imagine, you have these folks who are, who are all over the city. And they're calling themselves experts in a new religion. And they're saying, look, I can impart to you a special knowledge, but you got to pay for it. You know, I have to eat. And so you have to pay for what I'm going to share with you. And in order for them to actually be people that would, that would attract an audience, they had, to, they had to feign, they had to pretend to be perfect, have everything figured out. And they imagined that godliness, if they lived a certain way, they could attract an audience who would pay 
for their teaching. But Paul says, no, it's not by living a godly life that you get gain or profit. He says, godliness is the gain. Or more specifically, in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, contentment is the gain or the reward of godliness. Contentment is the gain. That's the reward of godliness. And in this case, godliness is not about behavior, but about believing. Believing the sound words of Jesus Christ, verse 2, the news of the all-satisfying and all-powerful work of Jesus. So it's hard to be content, isn't it? But here, here's the secret to contentment. It's recognizing the emptiness of worldly pursuits and learning to relish what we have in Christ. Now, that's, that's hard. I mean, that's a process. That takes a life, really. It's learning. In fact, uh, it doesn't come naturally. Contentment doesn't come naturally. Our flesh fights against contentment in Christ. We want respect. We want pleasure. We want the newest thing. Now, Paul, of course, understood this better than anyone in terms of contentment. He says this in a different letter, Philippians chapter 4. I know what it is to be in need. And certainly he did. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now that verse, Philippians 4.13, is one of the most abused verses in Christendom. Uh, you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. People, you know, I can, you know, I can slam dunk a basketball. I can, I can ace the ACT. It's not about that, right? It's not about God giving you some super ability to, you know, kind of, you know, scale tall buildings or climb any mountain or walk on water or whatever. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is whether he's rich or poor, powerful or powerless, whether he is preaching to huge crowds or confined to a filthy prison, he can do everything that God assigns him to do in Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, through the one who gives him strength. God gives us the grace to do what he calls us to do. This is why Augustine, the fourth century uh, Bishop of Hippo, from whom many of our, the, the scholars and theologians that we read uh, glean much from, he says, he said he would pray regularly. He said, God, he said, command what you will, but give what you command. In other words, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I want to submit to you. I want to do what you tell me to do. But the only way I'll ever be able to do it is if you actually give me the ability to do it. God gives us the ability to, to do what he calls us to do. And the more that we learn to, to rest in, to believe in his generosity, which again took center stage in Jesus Christ, the more that we have contentment and joy. Now, I understand this is a bit philosophical it's a tad bit ethereal, perhaps. And so Paul actually contrasts this contentment that he's talking about with the opposite, and that's greed. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul says because of their desire to be rich, their love of money. It's not that money was the problem per se. 
It was their longing for it. It was the love of it. Paul emphasizes this over and over three times in these two verses. Those who desire to be rich. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is this craving, because of this craving that some have wondered. Again, it's not that money itself is evil. And in fact, we see in the, in the scriptures that there were plenty who were rich, who were actually commended by God for their righteousness, their sacrifice, their godliness. So it's not money, but it is the love of money, the desire for money. Paul says that those who desire to be rich fall into a snare they plunge into ruin and destruction. What's, what do you think significant about the words plunge and fall? Well, they're words that describe something that happens to someone that's unexpected, right? They, they have no idea it's coming. You don't fall into something that you know is coming. You don't plunge into something that you're aware is there. And this is how it is with greed. Greed is a silent spiritual killer that sets us on a path away from God and his provisions. See, greed is, is the opposite of contentment. And greed is also the greatest thief of joy. Nothing steals our joy like greed. Greed says, I have to have more. A bigger house, a better car, more vacations, more clothes, whatever it is. Contentment, though, says... I have enough, and with this I will be satisfied. The sad thing is that greed really steals from us, again, the joy of every experience. Some who's, who's greedy is always op operating at a loss, aren't they? Because whatever they have, it's, it's not enough. If it's hot out, they wish it were cold. If it's cold out, they want it to be hot. They go out to, to the restaurant with somebody, they always want the other person's meal. You know, they always want what somebody else has. You know, they always want something they don't have. They get a pay raise, it's not enough, it should have been more. When they get possession of one thing, it only reminds them of the one thing that they don't have but desperately need. Of course, marketing plays into this, doesn't it? The whole point of advertising is to create a need in us that really doesn't exist. I can hardly tell you the number of times when my kids were little that we'd be watching something on TV, you know, a basketball game or something, and this commercial would come on. they say, oh, daddy, you need that. I say, why do I need a laser precise nose hair trimmer? <laughs> and then I look in the mirror. I say, okay, maybe I do need that. I say, why do I need a rocket fueled ab cruncher? All right, fine. I do need it. I need all this stuff. And this is what marketing says. You need it. You've got to have it or you'll never be happy. And so it simply fuels, it stokes our greed. Everywhere we turn, we turn, we're told we deserve more. You deserve more than you have. And greed creates a false perception of need. Godliness, though, the right way of believing actually addresses that perception. Here's how. This is our final point. Being satisfied in Jesus, which is the essence of godliness, frees us from the burden of feeling constantly in need. And we feel in need, don't we? I need respect. I've heard that so many times, and I felt that way. I need to be valued. I need to be recognized. I need to be noticed. I need to be rewarded. I need that promotion. I need whatever it is. I need, I need, I must have. How are you going to find contentment even this morning? It's by focusing 
on what you already have, not on what you think you need. If you are a, if you're in Christ this morning, think about what you have. Think about what you have. You have been adopted into God's family. He is your father and you are his child. You have an audience all the time with God. You can come before God at any moment and he hears you. You are of tremendous worth to God. He delights in you. You are loved by God even when you fail. You stand forgiven this morning. Your sins will never, ever, ever be held against you if you are in Christ. I love this phrase. I was studying a few weeks ago for our our Wednesday night uh, connect, and and I was reading on forgiveness, and I came across this phrase, the laughter of the forgiven, and that was so meaningful to me. If you know you're forgiven, you can laugh. If you know it's not all riding on you, you can relax, you can rest. If you know that your righteousness is actually tied to the work of another, you can breathe again. You don't have to be enslaved to all of these these feelings of failure and performance and so on. Talking about, we talk about our forgiveness. How was our forgiveness secured? Well, we talked about setting aside our rights Jesus left the confines of heaven. The one who was, in fact, God in the flesh, took on all the limitations of humanity. He got tired, hungry, frustrated, sad, weak. Took on all the limitations of humanity so that he could identify with sinful people and be their representative and their substitute. He subjected himself to the rule of the people he created. I mean, think about that. He decided to come under, to subject himself to the rule of the people he created. I was on a a board one time for a ministry, or actually 11 years for a ministry in South Africa. And I served on the initial board and for the person who started the ministry. And there came a time, 15 or 16 years into this ministry, we had to actually relieve, we had to relieve the person who created the ministry of his duties. In other words, we had to fire him. And he, he was absolutely bewildered. He was, I mean, he couldn't, I started this thing. How could you fire me? Imagine the God of the universe coming under the ridicule of the people that he made, the people he created. He subjects himself to them so that we could be forgiven. That's how much you're loved this morning. You have a mansion already prepared for you in Christ. You have been covered with the righteousness of Jesus And therefore, you are beautiful to God this morning, inside and out. Which means you don't have to earn God's approval. It's yours in Christ. You don't need anyone else's respect. You don't need for others to approve of you, for you to be valuable. You stand approved this morning by the king of the world. You have everything you need in Jesus. And it's this realization that actually leads to the heart to be content. This is the only way that the Apostle Paul could say what he said while languishing in a dark dungeon, chained up and imprisoned, and yet still talking about all the joy that he was experiencing in Christ. The only thing we need is what Christ has already provided and the constant uh, reminder by God of that grace that has been shown to us by faith. And this is why we sing, Lord, I need you. I have everything I I, I need in you, but I need you to remind me. 
I need to remind myself that I can't do it on my own. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Let's sing that together after I pray.